is the Decibel Geek Podcast with Aaron Camaro and Chris Sinzak. It's time for the most radical, bodacious podcast on the internet. It's time for the Decibel Geek Podcast. My name is Aaron Camaro, joined as always by my always rocking friend, Chris Sinzak. How's it going, man? It's rocking, of course. Yeah. <laughs> you look like uh, you've been doing a lot of research. I have. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> These year interviews, man, they're tough. They yeah, are tough. Tough but fun. A lot yeah, of fun, too. Like very them. very uh, fun to learn things. Yeah. I hope you guys learn some things, too. We're going to have a lot of fun today with part one of 1981. But before we get to all that, of course, we got to take care of our business. And our business is getting reviews. iTunes reviews. We like recommendations on Facebook. We like Podchaser reviews. We got two of the three. Yes. Two of the three today. No pod chaser, but that's all right. We got an awesome one. Five stars in iTunes review, Apple Podcasts. Goes a little something like this. Here is my long time coming five star review for my friends Chris and Aaron from the Decibel Geek Podcast. I completely love this podcast. The production, content, and spirit are top notch. I've done the show twice. Due to my involvement with different Anthrax releases, and am thankful. Chris and Aaron are completely likable hosts that pull you into the sentiment of the rock and roll that we love. Unlike some podcasts, they have good microphones and relaxing voices. Yes, we do. Oh, yeah. You won't leave the show wanting to hurt either one of them. <laughs> laugh out loud. That's funny. <laughs> I only hope. That when I finish doing my next Anthrax release, Persistence of Time, I can come back on. Keep me coming on, guys. I wish you all the success in the world. You guys are the genuine, real deal. Thanks for being a friend to me, your thrashing pal, Sean Franklin. Man, can't get any better review than that, man. Yeah, I'm getting I'm tearing up. Tissues for different reasons. Now, now we're getting iTunes reviews, and they're making me want to cry. No, that's Thank fantastic. You. Thank you, Sean. We love having Sean on the show. We will, Hell yeah. We will for sure have you back on for persistence of time. Oh, you know it. It's so much fun to do those. Yeah. All right. So what else we got? We've got a recommendation on Facebook. True Prey recommends us, and he says this. About seven years ago, I discovered Vinny Vincent because of the arrest he had. Maybe it was more. Anywho, if you can find them on the YouTube, the entire Vinnie Vincent saga is incredible. Personally, I totally had written him off, and because of their podcasts, it got my interest in him and his music again. Just enjoyed the Vinnie Vincent saga episode 6 recently. Great podcast. That's a great recommendation on yeah. Facebook from True Prey. Thank you very much. Who's this Vinnie Vincent guy he's talking about? Yeah, I don't know. Mm. I don't know much about that. <laughs> oh, speaking of that, yeah, we finally got the Torpedo Dudes episode up and ready for our Patreon people, our yeah. VIPs. Uh, Kicking uh, ass. We finally got it done. Uh, Torpedo Dudes. Soon. Not, well, qu not quite up. Oh, yet. not quite up yet? No. Oh, no. man. I'm wanting to perfect it. I want to make it good. But it will be up soon. Okay, cool. Yeah. We are recording them, I promise, guys. Yeah, they are getting recorded. I think I got another one almost ready for part two already, just yeah. from the snippets and fun things that we record on the side. You won't have to wait as long as you did for Chinese democracy. I, <laughs> I saw that comment. Mm -hmm. Who said that? Uh, I, I, can't, I can't remember exactly. Oh, David Hudson said that. Yeah, yeah. dirty D devil. Hud. <laughs> Too funny. But yeah, they're coming for sure. Yeah. So I did my part. Now it's just up to Chris. So if you're mad, 
It's yeah, Chris's it, fault. Take it up with me because that's that's my uh, responsibility, apparently. But the first one's going to be a really good one. Yeah, it's it. You, you guys will enjoy it quite a bit. And you know, if you don't know, to become a Decibel Geek VIP, all you got to do is go to Patreon.com. Mm-hmm. You sign up at your whatever your contribution level is. Mm-hmm. They start at only a dollar. Yeah, you know, you and can't you get beat that. Torpedo dudes for that. You get Torpedo Dudes, which is a brand new Kiss podcast that Chris and I were doing. You ever wonder what it'd be like if we just if if it was uh, Christmas in July all year round? You can have it. That's what we're trying to do with the torpedo dudes so check that out and of course chris and aaron we've been recording that for many years now mm-hmm. so there's all kinds of backlogged audio i saw something somebody said the other day about you know they started listening back at the very beginning mm-hmm. listened all the way through and finished up and they wanted more yeah that's, so once um, they got caught up and didn't want to wait week to week because they'd been binge listening to us yeah they then knew it was time to become a decibel geek vip and now they're getting hours and hours and hours of us can you imagine yeah if, yeah if we sounds have, if awful you're, if you're not sick of us yet then you, you will be but yeah that's mark starsky who's our, our newest D- dbg that's VIP. right so that's thanks, right, mark. thanks so much mark and uh, i hope, cool. hope you enjoy all the extra content yeah there's plenty of it there for you to check out so let us know what you think of that we love our vip we talk to them in our private Facebook room, mm-hmm. our inner sanctum. Those are our people, man. Just our special, special ones. Yeah, speaking of Vinnie Vincent, I posted some interesting Vinnie Vincent stuff on the private group today. Yeah, so. and in Torpedo Dudes, we talk about all things from Peter Chris back in the day to current day news happenings. And you know what we're talking about there? Oh, yeah. There's a lot to talk about. Yeah. All right, so uh, our other favorite people, the Geeks of the Week, these are the people that shared on Facebook or retweeted on Twitter, last week's uh, top five Kiss songs from 74 to 77 episode. I changed all my picks. You did? Yeah, I yeah, got all I have new to. ones again. Yeah, I can, that could rotate on a daily uh, basis. They're all in a different order, too. Oh, and uh, a quick little update. So some of you said that uh, you, you didn't hear us talk about um, that the greatest show on earth had been pulled. Well, that's why you have to listen to the intro. Yeah. Like we did mention oh, it in the so intro. You, so people are skipping through the intro? Yeah, of course. Oh, they're man. not hearing me say this either because it's in the intro. But, oh, um, well, well, a lot of good that does. But it's, oh, here's some news for you. If you uh, didn't skip through the intro, um, Andrew has made uh, some references that The Greatest Show on Earth might be coming back on Vimeo in the future. Okay, cool. So you may have a shot at seeing it. But if you don't listen to the intro, you'll never know. <laughs> you'll never know. <laughs> thank God for the people that listen to the intro and thank God for our Geeks of the Week. Yeah, Geeks of the Week this week are Brant Cattell, Stacey Sullivan, Joseph Belly, Simon Katz, Scott Stein, Shane Abair, Greg York, Kevin Williams, James West, Jay Shabluski, Wayne Cross, Rock and Ron Runyon, Andrew Scambatti, Chuck Noseworthy, Andrew Baker, Aaron Baker, Steve Wright, Joe Lescon, Julian Gill, Shay Hargett, James McElhenney, Trevor McDougal, Andy LaFon, David Glenn, Samuel Wetz, Mike Parnell, Rodney Dixon, Bill Elam, Paul Kane, James Brendan Dunn, Brendan Barrier, Sean Cullen, and of course, the Mooger Fooger. Oh, is he on there? I forgot to put him on the list. Oh. <laughs> I didn't get to Twitter. I thought we were going to say, and Sean Cullen. Yeah, no, he, but yeah, the Mooger Fooger. Okay, check on the Mooger Fooger, everybody, make sure he's all right. He's good to go. All right, awesome. So are you ready to go? Back, like we always say, back in the DeLorean, literally this year. It's 1981. Are you ready? Yes. Fire it up. All right. Well, you ready to get into it? Let's do it. Okay. So, you know, it's a year in review. So how do we always start our year in reviews? Give us the facts, Jack. Here's the facts from 1981. Prices are different now than they were then. Oh, yeah. So some of the pricing from 1981. A postage stamp. Remember those? Oh, yeah. I do vaguely remember postage stamps. 18 cents in 1981. What are they now? I don't know. Like 50? I never use them. Yeah. Uh, Bread cost 54 cents for a loaf. 
That's I know it ain't I know it ain't that cheap now. Milk was a dollar sixty nine. Gas was a dollar thirteen a gallon. Hmm. A brand new car cost five thousand seven hundred and forty three dollars. Gas seems a little high. Yeah, it does for that era. Well, the gas shortage was just a couple yeah, years earlier. So yeah, that had to affect that. And of course, the all important, most important number of uh-huh. nineteen eighty one bacon was a dollar sixty two. Dollar sixty two. We couldn't go on with the show without knowing the price yeah, of bacon in nineteen eighty one. Yeah, that it's worth tuning in just for that alone. All right, so I guess the. Uh, the new year, 1981, mm-hmm. starts off with some big rock and roll news stories. So I guess why don't you go ahead and take the first one. I'll take the second. All right. So January 18th is where we're going to start. Mm-hmm. For those of you that think Miley Cyrus licking a sledgehammer is provocative, in 1981, Wendy Williams said, hold my beer. <laughs> okay. On January 18th, the Plasmatics were performing a set in Milwaukee at the Palms Nightclub when Wendy decided to take things up a notch. <laughs> she simulated fellatio and masturbation with a sledgehammer on stage. Nice. The Milwaukee police weren't amused and arrested the 31-year-old singer on an obscenity charge, and manager Rod Swenson was also arrested for resisting officers and battery to police officers. Yeah, oh, good old Wendy O. Williams, man. She was ahead of her time. Yep. That's some shocking stuff, even by today's standards, I think. That's probably the only year in review you're ever going to hear where we open with uh, simulated <laughs> fellatio and masturbation with a sledgehammer. Thank you, Wendy Williams. Thank you, Wendy. Yeah. All right. On the 21st of January, the first DeLorean DMC-12 rolls off the assembly line. It's the preferred car, as you know, of Ace Fraley, Marty McFly, and cocaine dealers everywhere. The DeLorean turns heads immediately with its stainless steel finish, gullwing doors, and 20 $5,000 price point. The honeymoon would be over quickly, however, when in October of 82, John DeLorean was arrested and charged with conspiracy to smuggle cocaine into the United States. DeLorean was exonerated, but with all the publicity the trial garnered, irreparable damage was done to both him and the car bearing his name. The DeLorean would go on to live on in pop culture, of course, with its connection to Back to the Future and, you know, going the wrong way down a one-way street with the devil by your side. That's uh... crazy. It's a cool car, but no I've always wanted a DeLorean. If I could have a choice of any car I wanted, and money pick? wasn't the limit, I think I'd get a DeLorean. <laughs> It'd be cool to own one. Shoot, yeah. Well, speaking of uh, auto things that happened on the 24th, um, Steven Tyler was in a brutal motorcycle crash in January. He was on his way to pick up his daughter Mia from the babysitter. The crash tore open his heel and nearly took an entire year to heal, Dang. delaying greatly the release of the Aerosmith album Rock in a Hard Place. Yeah. He was also unable to tour or write music during this time. He felt that during his recovery, Aerosmith's musical presence was on the decline, and many people attribute his extreme drug use at the time to causing the crash. I'd say it's a safe bet. Nineteen eighty-one. That, that uh, his drug use was directly in, in a part of that. All messed up on a motorcycle, going to pick up your daughter from the babysitter. Yeah. Nineteen eighty-one was a rough time for some people. Very much. So let's get into some music. Styx released Paradise Theater on January 19th. It was their 10th album, self-produced, released on A&M Records. It was a concept album about a fictional Chicago theater, its opening, its closing, and eventual abandonment. It would go on to become the band's most successful album, peaking at number one for three weeks in 1981. With songs such as Too Much Time on My Hands and Best of Times, it's easy to see why. The album also includes some great deep tracks such as Half Penny, Two Penny. Such a young man, sad story, old story, bring out the bad. 
The success of Sticks would continue in 1983 with the popular but misguided Kilroy was here. <laughs> the band minus Dennis DeYoung still rolls on today. Yeah, that's wild, man. So popular in 1981, and those guys have been around forever at that point. And they're about to go on tour with uh, Larry the Cable Guy, from what I read this week. For real? Yeah, for real. <laughs> Strange <laughs> bill. Okay. Yep. All right, so I guess here's my first one. I want to tell you about the Canadian heroes, April Wine, man. They've been killing it in their homeland for about a decade, but they never really caught on anywhere else until their big U.S. tour with Nazareth and the release of 1981's Nature of the Beast album. It's their ninth studio album, and it's the one that finally puts them over worldwide. It's their first album to go platinum outside of Canada. It's a really great, often overlooked album with some great rockin' tunes on it like Big City Girls, Crash and Burn, and Future Tense. Most well-known songs off this album are still staples of classic rock radio today. Talking about Sign of the Gypsy Queen and Just Between You and Me. This was the 14th music video ever played on MTV. Wow. was Just Between You and Me. Making April Wine the first Canadian band to ever be featured on MTV. Hmm. That Just Between You and Me song is a... It's a. It's kind of a... I don't know. It, it, it doesn't represent the rest of their sound. No, it really don't because the rest of the album is mostly pretty hard rock. Yeah, I was pretty pretty surprised by how much hard rock there is yeah. in their catalog. But isn't that the way it goes? Yeah, apparently you know, so. All the hard rock bands, you know, when you release that sweet love ballad, that's sometimes what you get pegged with. So, um, for my next one, uh, I'm going to go January 23rd. Uh, 1981 was a, a big time of transition for punk rock with the marriage of more pop-oriented influence. And yeah. New Wave became the genre of choice for many people. A pre-fame Billy Idol and his cohorts of Generation X were on their last legs by 1981. The band shortened their name to Gen X and released what would become their final album, Kiss Me Deadly. The album was released on Chrysalis Records but landed with a thud when it failed to enter the UK charts. While it was the death rattle for Gen X, the sole single released from the album was a harbinger of things to come for Billy Idol. Yeah. 
messing with myself goes all the way back to 1979 when Generation X originally recorded it. In 1980, the band re-recorded it and put it out again to little success. With limited success, Idol would take the song and release it as his first solo single, and as they say, the rest is history. Yeah, that becomes a pretty big hit for him. It's funny that, you know, Gen X couldn't do it. Same song, mm. multiple tries, yeah. and then Billy Idol goes out on its own, and it's the thing that breaks him. It was a lot more dance-oriented when he put it out, though. Yeah, totally. Yeah, more guitars sure. on this version. Yeah. Yeah. All right, now for something totally different. Also releasing an album in 1981, UFO released their ninth studio album, The Wild, The Willing, and The Innocent, yeah. released on Chrysalis Records. This is the band's first album without former Wild Horses keyboard player Neil Carter replacing Paul Raymond, who had left to join the Michael Schenker group, who was also in UFO. The album peaked in America at 77 and deserved much better, as it's filled with great tunes, including a great Pete Way film mog opener, Chains Chains. <laughs> Popular opinion, but I actually prefer the Paul Chapman era of UFO over the Michael Schenker version. Really? Yeah, both are great, but this album and 1982's Mechanics are just really strong albums, in my opinion. Yeah, definitely worth digging into some of their stuff from this era because people don't talk about UFO from this the 80s time mm. period. They they really get lost in there. There's a lot of gems on those two records. Right on. Yeah. Well, I got some great news yeah. for the people in 1981 because it is decided that on February 25th is the official death date of disco. Yeah, disco's finally dead. And I know that news is going to sadden no more than 1% of our listeners. But that's it, the official death date right there. The National Academy of Recording Artists and Scientists announced that after two years, there would no longer be a Grammy Award for the genre. As a result, sales of gold chains and horrific clothing also took a big dive yeah. in 1981. Cocaine, <laughs> cocaine was still selling pretty well, though, yeah. from what I've heard. Yeah, yeah, that survived disco. Right. But disco could not survive the 80s. Mm-mm. That's wild to have something so big and popular not too long before just totally die out like that to the point where they say, well, we're not even going to honor that at the Grammy Awards. Right. Sounds like what they do to heavy metal in the in the, fear, in the future. Yeah. It's terrible. But no, I'm glad disco's gone. Yeah, me too. Or is it? Here's something that will make you totally, totally forget about disco. 
After coming off a big tour giving European Kiss fans a brand new favorite band, it's time for the second studio album from new wave of British heavy metal pioneers, Iron Maiden. This is a movement just beginning to emerge in 1981, and although most other countries are already on board, it's on the razor's edge of exploding in the United States. Thanks to albums like this, it's the first of many Maiden albums to be produced by Martin Birch, famous for his work with the masters like Black Sabbath and Deep Purple. And even though a lot of these songs are leftovers from the debut album, the addition of Birch and, of course, guitarist Adrian Smith make these songs become a progression forward from where the band was a year earlier. Nico McBrain has had such a huge hand in the legacy of Maiden that I think people forget about Clive Burr and what an awesome team he was with Steve Harris on the first three albums. Yep. Not to mention the nuclear fusion of Dave Murray and Adrian Smith. What's not to love about this album? Even the instrumental tracks are kick-ass. Plus, you get Wrathchild, Murder in the Rue Morgue, the title track is killer, an awesome song called Purgatory. album it's off on the killer world tour where they would alternate between opening for judas priest ufo and headlining themselves this tour especially the u.s dates with judas priest are the linchpin to the floodgates of the new wave of british heavy metal taking over the united states maiden and priest played every major u.s market including four nights together at the palladium in new york city four nights in a row in 1981 of priest and maiden wow as the stock in Maiden continues to rise, the reliability of their lead singer, Paul Diano, is at an all-time low. After playing for well over 100 shows in 16 different countries in less than a year, Diano is done for and plays his last show as the lead singer of Iron Maiden on September 10th in Copenhagen, Denmark. By October 26th, Maiden is back out on tour with Bruce Dickinson. And of course, this is one of the greatest album covers of all freaking time. Oh, totally. But yeah, wild year for Maiden. You know, it's like I said, it's 81. It's right before it bursts in the United States. You know, this is the year that bands like this take over. Oh, totally. That might be my favorite Maiden album cover, and there's been a lot oh, of it's, Yeah, that is so cool. Yeah. But like I say, it's funny that they start off the year before stealing all of Kiss's fans in Europe. <laughs> yeah, well, with what Kiss was doing at the time, I can you can see why. Yep, yeah. tune in for part two for that. Isn't it kind of funny that Priest... Stole a bunch of their fans on the Dynasty tour, uh-huh. and then Maiden did it on the next one. Yeah, that's yeah, interesting. You think they'd learn? Dun, 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 dun. Yeah, <laughs> we're in trouble here. Oh, yeah. We'll get to that in part two. All right. Well, Riot released Fire Down Under on February 9th. It was their third studio album and last with frontman Guy Speranza on Electra Records, featuring the incredible guitar playing of Mark Reale and great drumming from future Ace Fraley band alumni Sandy Slavin. Mm-hmm. Fire Down Under is an underrated gem. Thank you. 
It's almost criminal that Riot didn't experience the success of many new wave of British heavy metal bands. This may be a case of it being a detriment to be an American band at that time. Right, even though they were basically, you could fit them right in with what was going on with that stuff, but because maybe because they weren't from Europe. Yeah, I think New Jersey, I think, is where they're from. Huh, that's weird, because they're a great band. Yeah, a lot of great material on those records, even though the album covers are pretty questionable. (laughs) Yeah, that could be part of the problem. Right. All right, here's one for you. Michael Monroe was a teenager in Finland when he discovered Slade, Sweet, and Black Sabbath. He would go on to form Hanoi Rocks, Finland's first hard rock band. In 1981, they released their debut album and went on a 102-date tour. That's the longest Finland-exclusive tour by any band ever up to that point. They would release better albums as they go ahead, but I think it's important to feature the humble beginnings of a band that would go on to influence many great bands. Suicide on guitars, Sam Yaffa on bass, Jip Casino on drums, and of course, Michael Monroe on lead vocals. In 81, in Finland, there were no other homegrown rock bands, so everything they did was DIY by necessity. Soon after the release of their first album, they would expand their horizons and move to London. This is a band 10 years ahead of their time. Oh, completely. Yeah. Yeah, and very influential, like hugely influential on, on a lot of the glam rock bands from the 80s. Like yeah. they, uh, Michael, everybody, a lot of people copied Michael Monroe. Now, sure. I find that wild that you're in a country where nobody's ever done this before. Right. And look at those guys. You know, yeah. Of course, they're rock stars. They're the only ones in Finland. Yeah. And Michael Monroe's got new record coming out in the next year, I think. Yeah, already and his solo out. stuff is great. Oh, man. Especially stuff he's coming out with nowadays. Yeah, that Horns and Halos album. One oh, of it's my killer. favorite albums of the last 10 yeah, years. Good stuff. Awesome. Well, Rush had, was up to some stuff in 1981. On February 12th, they released Moving Pictures in what can only be classified as a prog rock masterpiece. Released on Anthem Records, this was the band's eighth studio album. It loved across the board. The album shot up the charts worldwide, reaching number three in America and the UK, and number one in Canada, of course. On the strength of such singles as Tom Sawyer, Limelight, and Vital Signs. Thank you. 
Pictures is a powerhouse of an album going on to become certified quadruple platinum. Wow. Just a huge record. Yeah. Yeah. That's Rush a is making it happen in 81. Yeah. Great record. All right. Well, let's move from one big band on to another one. In 1981, the new wave of British heavy metal was in full swing. Uh-huh. And sitting at the top of the mountain was Judas Priest. Shoot, yeah. Fresh off the success of British Steel, the band packed up their gear and flew out to Ibiza, Spain to work on the next record. That album would become Point of Entry. Songs like Desert Plains, Heading Out to the Highway, Turning Circles, and Solar Angels would help solidify Judas Priest's stature in the early 80s. It remains my favorite album of theirs. RCA video disc player and video discs. Just flip a switch, and on our TV, we see Goldfinger, Grease, The Black Stallion, Star Trek, Ordinary People, Patton, The Pink Panther, Peanuts, and a hundred more, starting as low as $15. And the player costs less than $500. On Barbara Mandrell and the Mandrell Sisters, singer Ronnie Millsap and the star of Packs of Life, Charlotte Ray, join in a salute to the fabulous 40s. Then, on a special two-hour Hill Street Blues, the precinct gets a visitor. President of the United States. And a daring hostage rescue could backfire. Then, after local news... We are the wildest It's Saturday Night Live with Steve Martin and the Blues Brothers. Barbara Mandrell and the Mandrell Sisters and Hill Street Blues, Saturday on NBC. Well, I love a rainy night. I love a rainy night I love to hear the thunder Watch the lightning when it lights up the sky You know it makes me feel good 
The change of decade from the 70s to the 80s included a strange mainstream surge in the popularity of country music. Weird. <laughs> the urban cowboy movement was launched the previous year when John Travolta starred in the movie of the same name. <laughs> Suddenly people were trading in their bell bottoms for wranglers and their platform shoes for cowboy boots. The music world also embraced it with hits from Kenny Rogers and Dolly Parton. Oh, yeah. As well as this one, I Love a Rainy Night by Eddie Rabbit, that topped the Billboard chart at the end of February of 1981. Everybody knows that song. Maybe maybe not love it, but, I mean, everybody's heard it. I always view it as a road trip song. Yeah. I I, I just have memories of riding with my parents on long drives and and hearing that on the radio. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it was always on the radio back then. Mm -hmm. But now let's talk about what was on the TV in yeah. 1981. So I got the top five most popular songs from 1980, or TV shows from 1981. Number five, Alice. You still love that show. Yeah. Number four, Three's Company. Mm-hmm. That's a great one. Mm-hmm. Number three, The Jeffersons. <laughs> number two, 60 Minutes. I think that's that's almost always on all of these. Yeah. And number one in 1981, it's Dallas. I remember watching every one of these shows with my parents. Yeah. Yep. Other top shows of the time include MASH, mm-hmm. The Dukes of Hazard, My favorite. Love Boat, Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley, One Day at a Time, Magnum P.I. These are all great TV shows. Yeah. It's funny that you look at these and like some of them are back now. Like Magnum mm-hmm. P.I., there's a new version of that. Yeah. Um, other big happenings, a couple of big weddings in 1981. You had the uh, televised wedding of Prince Charles and Princess Diana. Mm-hmm. That was a huge thing. Like millions and millions of people watched My that. My mom was up at like 3 in the morning to watch that. On yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Because I suppose because of the time difference. Yeah. <laughs> I, I remember. Oh, it. that's crazy. People had to stay up till 3 a.m. and that many people oh, still you... stayed up to watch it? Yeah. Weird. American fascination with British royals. I never I mean. got it. And me neither. I <laughs> still don't understand it. Another big wedding. Was General Hospital, yeah, the daytime soap and the wedding of Luke and Laura. Yeah. That was a big deal, too. Like, women stayed home from work for that. Oh, yeah. It was a huge event. Millions watched it. Crazy, crazy. Also, uh, let's see, in uh, 1981, Walter Cronkite, the famous CBS news host, signs off for the final time, and he's replaced by Dan Rather. Yeah. I remember I, Walter Cronkite. Me too. I, was, I liked him. I don't really remember him as a childhood, but I you know, certainly I, – I was a journalism minor, so I remember yeah. you know, studying him, and I was watching – if you go on YouTube, you can watch like um, – broadcasts of historical things as they happen. Right. Obviously, the JFK assassination is one of them, and Cronkite's the one who delivers the news. Right. But it's interesting you mentioned about Dan Rather replacing him because he's reporting from the the anchor desk, and at times there's Dan Rather reporting in from Dallas. From wherever, yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting. They kind of had the torch being passed right there. That's pretty wild. 1963. Yeah. And then what would happen by 81? Yep. Uh, In 1981, we'll say goodbye to the Hollywood Squares. Charlie's Angels, The Waltons, Super Friends. That was my favorite show. <laughs> was it? Yeah, I love the superhero cartoons. Uh, also, goodbye to, uh, this one will speak to KISS fans, The Mike Douglas Show and Don Kirshner's Rock Concert. Yeah. So those are gone in 81. Debuts in 81. I love this one. The Greatest American Hero. Oh, yeah. And The People's Court. <laughs> Entertainment Tonight. That still goes on. Yep. Quickie Koala. I don't remember You that don't one. remember Quickie Koala, Saturday morning cartoon? Mm-mm. 81 was the debut of the Smurfs. I know a, you know that I one. I was a huge fan of the Smurfs. Simon and Simon debuts mm-hmm. in 81. Hill Street Blues. That was a great show. The Fall Guy. Yeah. Heather, I love The Fall Guy. Heather Thomas. Yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, then you got the debut of the primetime soap operas. I mean, Dallas is doing huge numbers, yep. so you got to come out with Dynasty and Falcon Crest. Yep. Uh, something that excited me at this age in 1981 was I six years old, maybe? Uh, Spider-Man and his amazing friends. Yeah, he had that. Iceman and Firestorm teaming up with him. And if you were lucky enough to have cable... As a kid, you could enjoy You Can't Do That on Television. Yeah, just don't say water or I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I used to love going over to my aunt's house who lived in town, Mm -hmm. and they had cable, so you could watch MTV, you could watch Nickelodeon, but then we'd have to go back to our house, and we didn't have cable. We had cable. I would watch a lot of You Can't Do That on Television. Yeah. Here's something you can't do on television. What's that? It brings us into March the 27th. It's the famous day. Ozzy and Sharon Osbourne were attending a meeting at CBS Records, internal for staff. It was not a public event, thank God. (laughs) Um, He later stated he was drunk, as usual. We're talking about Ozzy here in 1981. So he takes three doves to the event in his pockets, and the idea is to release them into the air Mm -hmm. as like some kind of, you know, Ozzy-like showmanship. Instead... In an even more Aussie-like over-the-top display of madness, he comes into the meeting, sits down on the lap of a female CBS staffer, released two of the doves, and promptly bit the head off the third one. Yep. Rock and roll! Rock and roll. (laughs) (laughs) Said Ozzy to the Musical Express in 1982, I've been in the industry for the last 14 years, and I've been to these bloody board meetings time and time again. And most of the time, they don't know who you are. You might be number 93 on some list. (laughs) Well, this time I thought I'd make sure that they wouldn't forget me. Oh, boy. I had intended just to throw the thing in the air and let it fly around the room. But instead, I bit its head off. (laughs) In this world, for some reason, you have to do some pretty bizarre things before people begin to know what you're about. Well, that kind of explains Ozzy all the way around there, doesn't it? Ozzy was a man to be feared and respected in the 80s. Oh, he was feared. I remember. Yeah. I remember the first Ozzy cassette tape I got. My parents weren't real thrilled about that. Yeah, because even his reputation spread to my parents, who had no idea about totally. heavy metal. Yep, I remember having to. Uh, I mean, I'm sure I've told the story before. Go over to my uncle Bruce's house, and I'm buying his old records, and I get the Ozzy, and I get out in the car, and my dad goes, "Ooh, mm-hmm. Ozzy." I was yeah. like, "Yeah, like all four of them," you know. And, yeah. He's like, yeah, I don't know if I should let you listen to that. But I was smart by that age because I said to him, but dad, I've been listening to your Black Sabbath albums all these years. That's true. And he's like, what? I told him, you know, Ozzy's John Osborne, Ozzy Osborne from Black Sabbath. Yeah. Same guy. He's like, oh, okay then. He should have been like, look at the cover of Sabbath Bloody Sabbath for crying out loud. Yeah. Jeez Louise. Yeah, he didn't have Sabbath Bloody Sabbath. He had Paranoid and a couple other ones. That album cover will get your attention. All right, so another crazy thing that happened in 1981. March 30th was a crazy day as President Reagan and three others were shot during an assassination attempt while walking out of the Washington Hilton Hotel. The mm-hmm. shooter, John Hinckley, had perpetrated the attack as an attempt to impress actress Jodie Foster, who he had become obsessed with after seeing her role in the movie Taxi Driver. Yeah, that's crazy. You know, that's one thing I kind of noticed about this, like doing the research to 1981. And then, like, because there's a lot of crazy political stuff mm-hmm. going on in 81. And there's a lot of the elements that we're going through now mm-hmm. in 2018 were the same or to some extent maybe even a little worse yeah, in, t- in, in 81. Ways. Yeah. You know, because I know Ronald Reagan was the new president, mm-hmm. but a lot of the stuff I read was, like, good half of the population hated him. 
while the other half of the population loved them. Right. Whereas, so it's like comparative to what we got going on nowadays. Well, I know with the John Hinckley thing, I did a little bit more reading on that because, I mean, I was a little kid, so I, I remember right. it happening, but I don't remember a lot about his motivation. I just knew he was obsessed with Jodie Foster, but I was like, Which why is, is he, why is he obsessed with her? But I guess, you know, Jodie Foster plays a prostitute, child prostitute in the movie. Okay. And the guy basically, and the movie is, if you haven't seen Taxi Drivers, Robert De Niro playing a guy named Travis Bickle. Yeah. And Travis Bickle tries to assassinate like a U.S. senator. So he was, this guy was like trying to kind of recreate the movie. So he was trying to impress the character that yes. she played in a movie, not so much right. her. And I guess he had like sent letters to her and... You know, she she even mentioned in an interview that she was taking classes at Harvard for yeah. stuff. So he's like signed up for a writing class at Harvard. Good Lord. And still wrote letters to her. And even Harvard would send, stu- you know, letters to the police, but they had no way of tracking him down. And one interesting thing, though, is it wasn't just about a hatred of Reagan. It was it was just the act of doing of trying. He was it. trying to make himself important enough to where she would notice him. So if this guy in the movie tried to kill a senator... I'm going to try to right. kill a president. And actually, he was um, researching and trying to kill President Carter before Reagan even got elected. And he so even, it wasn't about Reagan. Not about personal. Reagan. It was just the idea of doing but it. But here's an interesting thing. He actually had, like, he had, like, made attempts or, like, he had gotten close. He was surprised how close he could get to these people. Yeah. And he even got close to Carter at an attempt uh, at, a, at a stop here in Nashville. They actually arrested Hinckley with guns at Nashville Airport. Holy shit. Which I didn't realize in like 1979. So the guy was running free for a while, but they got him. I think he's still in prison today. I would sure imagine so. Yeah. But he got he only got put away for, no, he's in a mental hospital. He got found guilty just for, or innocent on reason of insanity. So okay. he's been locked up in like a sanitarium the whole time. Yeah. Keep him there. Don't let that guy out. Pretty messed up. That was the last attempt on a president's life in the united states i think so yeah yeah, yeah. security got way better after that i'm betting yeah all right let's get back to the rock and roll let's talk about the third studio album from except hey, yeah this is kick-ass breaker marks the return of old friend michael wagner <laughs> michael is a former founding member of except a guitar player and now he's back to mix and engineer this album this is his first credit on the way to making rock history many times with many different artists credited as michael overload wagner <laughs> next time we see him, we go, what's up overload let's do it see what he says he'd probably be impressed the previous year, Except released an album where they were kind of positioned to be known as like the German ACDC, but that's not what Except saw for themselves. So Breaker is aptly titled as the band's conceited effort to break away from what others saw for them and create the awesomely unique sound that they would become known for. You make the stars illusions and dreams. You want your heart, you know what I mean. Please, 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 
Although the album isn't a huge success, it does set Except on the right path towards it. With their signature sound established in 1981, a majority of their hardcore fans consider this the first of the true Except albums. And again, 1981, awesome album cover. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I love the album covers of the 80s. Me too. So good. And back then you actually had a full-sized album. Right. You got the hot chick with the mm. barbed wire running through <laughs> her ears. Ah, so cool. So here's something cool. While Britain seemed to be drawing the most attention in the rock music world of 1981, a little band from Switzerland had been methodically building up quite a catalog. Crocus released Hardware in March of that year. Following the success of 1980's Metal Rendezvous and before larger success in 82 with One Vice at a Time, Hardware kind of falls under the radar with many rock fans. The album does feature some great tracks, including Rock City, Easy Rocker, and Burning Bones. Crocus is still going at it, but not for long, as they announced their impending retirement tour earlier this year. A farewell tour is scheduled for 2019. Crocus, that's one of them bands that always kind of flies under the radar, I think. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they get, maybe it's an American thing. I just don't. I remember that bit of a butt of, bit of, a butt of the joke for a long time, yeah. especially in the 90s, if you bring up the name Crocus. Right. It would yeah. always elicit laughter from people. <laughs> it's just such an 80s metal band sounding name, I oh, guess. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But there's some good material through their stuff. Yeah, they're great musicians. You know, and they and they also, you know, have great album covers including, you know, two guys fighting in a forest fire. <laughs> That's a call way, way, That's, way back. If you if you get that joke, then you've been listening for the for a long time. <laughs> That's like a seven year old joke. <laughs> I'll never forget you bringing that to my house. Oh, man. <laughs> it's like, what is this? So funny. All right. So, I mean, talking about 81 being the year of marriages. Yeah. You know, and everybody loves a good marriage, especially between two celebrities. Mm. In 1981, Van Halen's ruling the world, but internal tensions in the band were tearing it apart. Eddie and DLR were at each other's throats behind the scenes. And in Eddie's personal life, he was trying to settle down. So on April 11th, he'd marry TV star Valerie Bertinelli. While he was limiting himself to one woman, the partying continued, and the marriage was marred with drug and alcohol abuse. It would end in divorce, but not before producing the current day bass player in Van Halen, Wolfie. Here's an interesting thing. I love this. In 1981, a monster was unleashed. Uh Uh-huh. Hatched in 1979, this monster would slowly gain traction over the next two years before its true coming out party in 1981. Talking about Bigfoot. Shoot, yeah. No, not the mythological creature. This one's all too real. The monster truck Bigfoot would come to fame in 81. The souped-up Ford F-250 was a 4x4x4 with massive wheels and could crush cars easily. 
Bigfoot would draw huge crowds at truck and tractor pull events across the country as monster trucks became a regular part of 80s pop culture. Bigfoot was so popular in 81 that it crushed cars at the Pontiac Silverdome and was featured in the movie Take This Job and Shove It. I love Bigfoot. Me too. The I most saw it in famous. person. Yeah, me too. There was a, um, and it wasn't even a monster truck rally. It was my dad uh, was a national sales rep for a tool company in the in the mid '80s when yeah. we lived in Chicago, and there was a big convention center called McCormick Place, and they did this thing called World Wheels, and I think it still happens now, but it was new then. And it was all these famous vehicles. So I saw Bigfoot in person. Yeah. Uh, the Knight Rider car was there. Nice. The Ghostbusters car was there. And the biggest memory, and I still have a photo of this at home somewhere, is a picture of me and my brother inside the A-Team van, both holding an Uzi. Awesome. It was, that was like one of the greatest days of my life. Oh, man. You got to find that and post it. And also, Lyle Alzado almost kicked the shit out of one of my dad's coworkers. Really? Yeah. At, oh, at, wow. at that same convention. That's so 1981. Yeah. Lyle <laughs> Lyle Alzada was like some spokesman for a tool company or something, and he was there as part of the promotion. And yeah. Apparently, this guy that worked with my dad like made some off-color remark behind his back, and Lyle Alzada heard it and like was like, "I'm going to beat your ass." And the guy had to like get protection to get away from him. Run, yeah. run! Lyle Alzada was a bad dude. And now for something completely different. <laughs> I'd say. Once in a while, when we put these year in review episodes together, we find something from completely out of left field, something that fell completely through the cracks at the time. Now, this band may be well-known to a segment of people, but until this week, I'd never heard of them before. I'm talking about Sirith Ungol. You heard of Sirith Ungol? No, never. Sirith Ungol was started in Ventura, California in 1971. The group's known for lyrics based on fantasy, particularly sword and sorcery, and is an early epic doom and power metal band. Influenced by bands like Grand Funk and Mountain, the band played their first gig on January 1st, 1972 at an anti-Vietnam War peace rally. In 1980, they were signed by Liquid Flames Records and released their first album, Frost and Fire. slug it out all the way until 1991 before disbanding due to frustrations with their record label. They reunited in 2016 and have since gone on to play several festival dates and even released a new song earlier this year, a single called Witch's Game. Wow. But, That's amazing how sometimes doing these years and year in reviews, like you said, you come across something like that where it's like Sirith Ungol. What? I've never heard of that. Yeah, and I think the name comes is based on like Lord of the Rings or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm guessing their name maybe hurt them. I'm guessing also If you can't spell the name of your favorite band, that's a problem. Yeah. But like a, to me that was completely foreign to me, but I know one of our longtime listeners Brad Kalmanson. I guarantee Brad, you know who this band I'm is. Sure. Of course. And I hope we get props for playing them. He's probably wearing a t-shirt of them right now. He probably now. is. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right, check this out. After a stellar performance at the previous year's Reading Festival, Whitesnake is one of England's most popular bands in 1981. 
This era of the David Coverdale-led band is affectionately known as Purple Snake yeah. because of the inclusion of John Lord and Ian Pace in the band, added with the production of Martin Birch. Now, to me, this is my favorite era of the band, back when they were like a deep, heavy blues rock band, led by the dual guitar threat of Bernie Marsden and Mickey Moody. Listen. coming years, David Coverdale will revamp the entire band to better reach a U.S. audience, but this was Whitesnake at their peak of popularity in their home country in the U.K. As Come and Get It reaches number two on the U.K. album charts, a height they would never reach again in their homeland. Hmm. Yeah. I love that stuff. I love the old White Snake. I'm the like, when, I, when I came into White Snake, it was, you know, Tawny Katane on the car, yeah, all of that stuff. Yeah. And I wasn't, for whatever reason, wasn't a big fan of all that. And people would say, oh, you like White Snake? No, not really, not really. But until doing this show and doing shows like we're doing today mm-hmm. made me force me to rediscover some of them early albums. Well, I guess discover for myself for the first time. Right. I love that stuff. I love the old mm-hmm. early 80s, like. Like 80, 81, 82. Yeah. I love that White Snake the most. To tell you how clueless I was in 87 when that album, the big one came out, I thought they were a new band. Yeah. I had no idea. I didn't I know suppose, yeah, me any too. of the history of him in purple or anything. Right. Yeah. I thought they were just a brand new band. And I didn't even, some of the songs that they put on the 87 album were done earlier. Yeah. yeah Here I Go Again was a blues rock That's song. right. It's on the next album after that one. Yeah. And it's cool. I like that version way better. Right. Cool. All right, well, closing out my song picks for today, we've got Spellbound, the second album from Tigers of Pantang. Released on MCA Records, this is the first of two albums to feature guitarist John Sykes, who would later join Thin Lizzy and then move on to White Snake and Blue Murder. Sykes' killer guitar tone can be heard in full-on tracks such as Silver and Gold, Hellbound, and Blackjack.
John Sykes up to now? It's anybody's guess. Really? I don't know. I think he was supposed to do a solo album a couple of years ago, but I'm, I don't even think it came out. Huh. I don't know. I That's I, wild. I had should, no uh, idea he was in Tiger's Pantang. Yeah, for a couple of records. He was with a bunch of other bands. Yeah. But I didn't know about that one. Yeah. That's pretty cool. I'll yeah. check that stuff out. It's a good record. Because he's a hell of a guitar player. Oh, amazing. Great I love writer, that Blue too. Murder stuff. Yeah. And his work with Whitesnake. I, that, I and love Thin Lizzy. And Thin Lizzy. Yeah, yeah, the Thunder and Lightning album. That's a kick-ass, heavy Thin Lizzy yeah. album. I love that one. That's Very probably talented. my favorite. He's a uh, eccentric guy. Maybe we should do a John Sykes special someday. We should. Look into that. That'd be cool. Maybe we can bring him back yeah. to disastrous results. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> Our track record's not too good right now. Yeah, maybe we should leave that one yeah. alone. I don't know if I'm going to bring anybody back. Oh, man. I've been waiting for this here. You, mm. you just can't talk about 1981 without this one. This is one of my all-time favorite records, and I bet you it's one of yours, too. I'm talking about the fourth studio album from American rock band Van Halen. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Fair Warning, released April 29th, 1981. It wasn't the most popular Van Halen album. And like you said, you know, they're going through some internal stuff at around this time. But to me, the songs on it, I mean, it's probably one of my most favorite Van Halen albums, if not the most favorite. Other than the two goofy songs at the end, <laughs> every song on here is killer. I mean, you got Mean Streets, Dirty Movies, Singer, uh, Sinner's Swing, Unchained, So This Is Love, Push Comes. I mean, golly, these songs are all awesome. My favorite song on here is Hear About It Later. Boy. 
tonight. Municipal Auditorium, 8 p.m. ZZ Top. Brought to you by the Beaver. If you don't have your tickets by now, they'll be available through showtime tonight at the Municipal Auditorium box office. This portion of 60 Minutes is sponsored by Ford and your local Ford dealer who invites you to see the 1982 Ford cars and trucks. Look out, world. Here comes Ford. Announcing a great new way to arrive. Look out, world. Ford Granada Wagon. Here comes Ford. The first Granada Wagon in history has arrived. And so have you. Stepping out, stepping up to something more than ordinary driving. Something to arrive in. Here comes all the technology of Ford's new V6. All the comfort of a contemporary sedan. And more cargo space than any American-built wagon in its class. Here comes the double take, stop and stare. Here comes an arrival that's just a little bit out of this world. Here comes all the guts of a wagon and all the glory of a Granada. Look out, world. Here comes Ford. It's just arrived at your Ford dealer. Here comes new. Here comes now. Here comes Ford. Come on now. Oh. Now the, the early 80s were so full of transition that a lot of successful acts from the 70s had a really difficult time adapting to the new decade. Not the case with Hall & Oates. <laughs> the Philly soul duo's popularity only increased in the 80s, and this song, Kiss on My List, was part of that. Spent three weeks at the top of the Billboard charts in 1981. Yeah, those guys were huge back then, man. Hall & Oates. I always... Kings of the 80s. I always think back to childhood when I hear these songs, because my parents had the... Uh, it was I think it was called Rock & Soul. It was like their greatest hits album at the time. Yeah. And this song got a lot of play in our car. So, yeah, uh, yeah I, I have a soft spot for Hall & Oates. Yeah? Yeah. I mean, you can't, you know... Like you say, it takes you back when you hear these songs. Yeah, like very for us, nostalgic. we were just little bitty kids, but we're hearing these songs on the radio all the time. Totally. All right, so uh, we've talked all kinds of music. We got a few more to go, but I think it's time to talk about the sports of 1981. Mm. So to close out the 1980 NFL season, Ian Wadley's going to love this. The Oakland Raiders defeat the Philadelphia Eagles on January 25th to win Super Bowl 15. Quarterback Jim Plunkett from the Raiders is the MVP. Then it starts up for the next year. So in a class featuring guys like Howie Long, Chris Collinsworth, Ronnie Lott, Mike Singletary, and Lawrence Taylor, the New Orleans Saints choose running back George Rogers with the first pick of the NFL draft. The George Rogers? The George Rogers. He's a great one. I don't know him. Me neither. 1981 was also the year of the Lester Hayes-Fred Belinknikoff rule. That's the first year it was implemented, making it illegal for players to apply adhesive or slippery substances to themselves. Yep. The stick'em rule. Yep. Yep, no more of that. 
Uh, Daryl Waltrip is the 1981 Winston Cup champion, winning 13 races throughout the series, including four in a row towards the end of the season. That's amazing. The New York Rangers dominate the entire 80-81 NHL season and easily win the Stanley Cup over the Minnesota North Stars. But despite that, Wayne Gretzky of the Edmonton Oilers is named MVP with 92 goals. That's pretty great. Here's a classic 80s World Series as Tommy Lasorda's Los Angeles Dodgers beat the New York Yankees. After the win, a handful of Dodgers players record a cover version of We Are the Champions by Queen. Oh, boy. Which leads to a live performance on Solid Gold. I have to go to YouTube for this. (laughs) I'm sure it's probably on there. It's got to be awful. Wahoo McDaniels is forced to relinquish the NWA United States Championship. I thought we were talking about sports. This is sports. Oh, boy. Here we go. After injuries suffered at the hands of Abdullah the Butcher. On October 4th in Charlotte, North Carolina, Sergeant Slaughter defeats Ricky the Dragon Steamboat in the finals of a grueling tournament to become the new U.S. champ. And that's a belt that's still defended to this day. Around this same time, Ric Flair defeats Dusty Rhodes in Kansas City to win his first World Heavyweight Championship. It's Larry Bird versus Moses Malone as the Boston Celtics beat the Houston Rockets in the NBA Finals. Larry Holmes and Sugar Ray Leonard are the undisputed kings of boxing in 1981. Huge stars. Mm -hmm. In the first ever World Games, they're held in Santa Clara, California. Now, the World Games is designed to feature competitions not recognized by the Olympics. You know, like baseball, softball, racquetball, bodybuilding, taekwondo, karate, women's water polo, badminton, tug of war. Tug of war. Water skiing. Bowling. Bowling. Trampoline. Oh, God. And don't forget artistic roller skating and fly fishing, just to name a few. As I said earlier in the show, cocaine was selling really well in 1981. (laughs) But what people really loved in 1981, besides cocaine, was tennis. Talk about Bjorn Borg, Chris Everett, Tracy Austin, Martina Navratilova, or something like that. Jimmy Connors and the AP Athlete of the Year, John McEnroe. You cannot be serious. I'm serious. John McEnroe. You gotta be kidding me! Yeah, he was the angry dude. He was the angry tennis player, and everybody loved him because he was, he'd yeah. yell and scream at the coaches all the time. He was the happy Gilmore of tennis. Yeah, <laughs> huge star in '81. And for the biggest news story in sports in 1981, I gotta tell you, '81 is a very interesting year in the career of Hulk Hogan. Oh, here we go again. It's important stuff. Mm-hmm. He starts the year foreshadowing his future Hollywood Hogan as an egotistical heel dressed in black. He dominates multiple organizations, including the AWA, the WWF, the Memphis Territory, and New Japan. Along the way, destroying fan favorites like Bob Backlund, Dusty Rhodes, Antonio Inoki, Hacksaw Jim Duggan, and even Jerry the King Lawler with his Hogan Hammer clothesline. No big boot and leg drop. Not for evil Hulk Hogan. (laughs) He became known for competing in handicap matches, defeating two and sometimes three opponents at the same time. One opponent that Hogan could never seem to get a victory over was the beloved Andre the Giant. Mm. Even though Hogan was a ruthless rule breaker, the fans still cheered him, especially in Japan where they called him Ichiban, the number one. (laughs) So by the end of the year, Hogan would drop the vicious Freddie Blassie as his manager, strike up a friendship with his former rival, Andre the Giant, and join him in his battle against hated wrestlers like Nick Bockwinkle, Jesse the Body Ventura, and Bobby the Brain Heenan. The seeds of Hulkamania are planted in 1981. Historic. That's your sports. 
all legit. Was Bobby the Brain Heenan a wrestler at that time? Bobby the Brain Heenan was an awesome wrestler. Didn't he wrestler. used to be called the Weasel? He, well, they, yeah, they call him the Weasel, and they stuff him in weasel suits. And, yeah. I mean, like, 81 is... to have magazines is, with pictures of that. Sure, because he was a manager, but he'd also wrestle, but he was the greatest because he was the one that would just... He'd get his ass kicked. Yeah. So he'd slam him in the corner, and he'd flop out of there and stuff, you know? And this is... That's where that all starts, you know? The, the Bobby Heenan, you know, my family of different mm-hmm. wrestlers, my group, my stable, always trying to kill Hulkamania. I wonder if he was an influence on Andy Kaufman doing his thing. Quite possibly. It would make sense. Seemed, Sounds like almost like I the mean, same thing. If you were Andy Kaufman and you were looking at somebody trying to figure out how you to do em- what, what Andy Kaufman would end up doing, yeah. Bobby the Brain Heenan is the perfect well, guy for that. I nope. love Bobby Heenan. Nobody pissed off wrestling fans quite like Bobby the Brain Heenan. <laughs> That's Shut up, tr- you humanoid. Yeah. <laughs> All right. All right, well, so um, let's see. We're now into May, and this is an interesting story. On May 14th, Diana Ross signs with RCA Records, leaving Motown Records, her label of two decades. The $20 million deal is wow. the most lucrative recording contract in history at that time. It's worth noting she was dating a certain rock star at this time who probably gave her some good negotiating tips. Yeah, I'm guessing so. Yeah. I'm sure having him around was only more than helpful in that situation. Gene Simmons knows how to work a deal. Shoot, yeah, he does. That's awesome. <laughs> Pretty interesting. You know, we've been having a lot of fun with 1981. and A lot of cool things happened, but there's some bummer stuff going on, too. On June 5th, the CDC discovers its first cases of AIDS. It was the beginning of something that would grip the nation for... I mean, the next decade or more, I mean, even to today, a report of five cases of, I don't even want to, it's, they call it PCP, but it's not the PCP you're thinking of. Right. Basically, they called it like the... It's the, like a pneumonia. But it was, they discovered it in five homosexual men. They, right. they put it together that it was five. So at first, you know, people all thought, oh, this is a gay, a gay disease. disease. yeah. But it turned out that's not the case because it's spread throughout. The CDC developed an investigative team to identify risk factors and develop a case definition for the national surveillance. Within 18 months, they conducted studies and uh, they basically, their reports all identified this as major risk factors for acquiring Acquired immu emo shit. I can't even do this. Acquired immunodeficiency syndrome, which is what immunodeficiency would become, syndrome. Yeah, that's what it was. would basically become known as AIDS. AIDS. Scary times. Yeah, I that's remember. all starting in 1981. So there yeah. you go. That's the end of disco, and it's also the end of free love. Pretty much. Well, in June, over in the UK, a rock and metal magazine was launched that would become a trusted source throughout the coming years. Kerrang! was launched in June by editor Jeff Barton. With the new wave of British heavy metal taking off at full speed, Kerrang! Be- became the tour guide to the movement. Yeah. Coverage of Judas Priest, Iron Maiden, Tigers of Pantang, Diamond Head, and more helped give the band's larger recognition and influence over another generation of younger musicians that would go on to de- develop thrash metal. It's worth noting Angus Young was featured on the first cover. Yeah, that's really cool, man. It was always one of them things like when I was a kid, we're reading Metal Edge and Hit Parader and stuff like that, that you always wished you could get Krang. Yeah. You know, I wish I would have had it together enough to, as a young kid, be able to have the subscription, you know, shipped overseas to me. Yeah, it's a legendary magazine. It's awesome. Oh, man, I'd love to find some of them nowadays. Yeah, no podcast back then. You had to go to the magazine. That's right. Yep. It wasn't instant either. Yep. So in 1981, talking about England, they suffered some serious riots across all kinds of major cities. It was like almost the entire 
country of England was in the middle of a riot. They perceived it at first as race riots between the communities, and in all cases, the main motives for the riots seemed to be racial tension and inner-city deprivation. And the riots caused the distrust of the police and authorities, and it was a huge mess. The four main riots that occurred were in Brixton, London, Handsworth, and riots in Birmingham, Chapeltown, and Leeds. And, I mean, it goes on and on and on. It was like the, like I said, the entire country mm-hmm. was in a riotous state. Yeah. Again, you know, there's there's stuff going on in 1981 that, I mean, Imagine if that was going on right now. You turn on the news, it's like the entire country of England is rioting. Everyone's in the streets tearing shit off. That must have been crazy. So 81, you know, we talk about our problems and weird things going on politically and on the world stage today. 81 was pretty messed up for it, that kind of stuff. It, it, it's it's A lot of this stuff is cyclical. It seems like it, it tends to happen over and over again. Yeah, well, we're back in it. So let's talk about some music, man. This is a band that's well-known and well-loved around here by many listeners and supporters of the Decibel Geek podcast, including ourselves, who became big fans of this band by doing this yeah. podcast and you can't talk about 1981 without talking about Y&T. Yeah, it's their third studio album, Earthshaker. I love it. It's so good. You know, these I always think back it's like why wasn't somebody turning me on to Y&T? Yeah, I didn't have any friends that were really big fans of Me them. neither. I didn't know nothing about them until, you know, like I said, until you get a little bit older and everybody starts talking about them or you finally find a CD at a good price and you try it out and it's like what have I been missing? Mm. This album's just loaded full of great songs. You got Hungry for Rock and Dirty Girl, Squeeze. They're also good. You got Young and Tough and Hurricane. Leonard Hayes on drums, Phil Kenimore on bass and backing vocals. He sings lead on a couple of these tracks. Joey Alves on lead guitar, acoustic guitars. He does it all. He does the backing vocals. And, of course, Dave Menachetti on electric guitar, lead vocals on most of the album. Dave Menachetti, your freaking rules. Amazing. This album's a perfect testament to that. You can't go wrong with this one. If this one's not in your personal collection, you need to go back to 1981 and get it. Yeah. Yeah, hop in, the, hop in your DeLorean. That's right. <laughs> you got one now. All right, well, you got one more pick. And so we got we're, one we're more and we're door. done. So yeah. this is always fun. Of course, we're going to be back next week for 1981 Part 2, but we're going to close it out like this. So 81's kind of a weird time for KISS because, you know, they're looking at now we took Priest out on tour a couple of years ago, and now we got Maiden we went out on tour with, and now all of a sudden the bands we're taking out with us are starting to surpass us. Right. In popularity. Well, it's kind of funny that in 1981, you got a band like Blue Oyster Cult that's starting to come back up. 
Mm-hmm. And Blue Oyster Cult was that band for Kiss. Yeah. Kiss did that to them. You know, right. Kiss did this to these bands, and then later on the bands would do it to Kiss. But in '81, off the single "Burning for You," oh, huge which hit. everybody knows that song, talking about Blue Oyster Cult, "Fire of Unknown Origin." Mm. Pretty great album. It is. You know, Blue Oyster Cult kind of escaped me when I was young because of being a Kiss fan and because of knowing the history and how Kiss, you know, overtook them. Mm. So they always seemed like, ha you know, I ain't listening to that. That's that band that wasn't as good as Kiss. Right. But then once I got older and started checking out these, because this was my Uncle Bruce's records, this was the first BOC album I got because of the album cover is so freaking awesome. It's mesmerizing. It's like, what am I even looking at here? What is this? I got to check it out. I got to listen to it. And of course, like I said, known for the big hit single, Burning For You, there's so many other great songs on here too. You know, this is the one that's got Veteran of the Psychic Wars on it. And Don't Turn Your Back is a song I like. The title track is awesome. But my favorite song off of here, this could have been a theme song for the Oakland Raiders maybe. Yeah. But this is a heavy tune by Blue Oyster Cult Standards, and it's one of my favorite on the album. So to wrap up 1981, part one, We'll close it out with Blue Oyster Cult and a tune called Heavy Metal, The Black and the Silver. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. 
And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 